Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Ocean Matters. I'm Izzy Clark, the producer of this series from the Bertarelli Foundation. And these bonus podcasts are a chance to revisit topics and explore extra content that we couldn't squeeze into the main episodes. In episode 10, we met the impressive ocean voyagers that are turtles. There's no doubt that this is a well-loved and celebrated group of species. Turtles have had a huge impact on cultures around the world and throughout history. But there's a fine line between celebrating a species and taking it for yourself. I spoke with JC Niala, acting keeper of anthropology at the Horniman Museum and Gardens in London, about some of the museum's turtle artefacts. But JC kicked off by telling me about her work at the University of Oxford. I am doing a PhD that looks at how our imaginations of nature affect how we treat it. And so that definitely in- incorporates turtles, as we'll hear more about uh, later on. Because if you see something that's beautiful or wonderful, how do you respond to that? Do you respond to it by thinking, great, it's beautiful, I'll enjoy it in nature? Or do you respond to it by thinking, I want to harvest that so I can wear it or I can use it in some way. So actually, the way we imagine nature has a powerful effect on how we treat the world. And especially in times of climate change, we need to understand that imagination so we can work with it and hopefully Gosh, treat the world better. That sounds like a fascinating topic. And today we're obviously talking about turtles. So how have we seen turtles influence culture throughout the years? Well, turtles have a long history of being seen as wise. Um, you know, they obviously live a lot longer, especially when we think of some of the, you know, like a Galapagos tortoise, for example, than we do. Um, but if we think about it, many of the stories that uh, we have grown up with involve turtles, but, you know, Aesop's fables, for example. So he was an enslaved person in Greece, and um, there's all these wonderful stories we get told as children, the tortoise and the hare. You know, that's a classic um, cultural story. If we move to the African continent um, for a moment, both on East and West Africa, there are wonderful stories about tortoises that convince animals to take them into the sky to feast with the sky god. And as the story goes, the animals realize they were being tricked and so dropped the turtle. And that's why its shell has or looks like it has all those breaks. And it's interesting that we find in different cultures on the same continent, but one from East and one from from West Africa have exactly the same story. Again, if we move now to a different continent, Asia, Japan has a long history of of kind of venerating turtles. There's a wonderful Japanese expression that says, cranes live for 1,000 years and turtles for 10,000. And so there's this understanding that for a creature that has been around for such a long time, it must know a lot about the world. So what I find really fascinating is we've got Asia, we've got American continent, we've got Africa, we've got Europe. And in all of these different continents, you know, the turtle is seen as this kind of almost supernatural creature because of the amount of time it lives for. They certainly outlive us easily. Yeah. And so what about European culture? How has the turtle influenced that? Well, 
In European culture, this actually comes back to some of the things I was saying about the imagination. So if we kind of go back to the 16th, 17th century and you have a, a time of um, European people really trying to find out about the world at large. And, you know, one of the places they went was the Caribbean. And of course, the seas at that time were full of turtles. And initially, they would have been seen as a food source by the sailors who are going out there, you know, some of them. And, and it's funny if you actually read some of the accounts of it. They describe turtles that actually, I'm sure, did not exist because of the size. But at the same time, you know, you can imagine starving sailors. They're out in the middle of, you know, what to them seemed like the middle of nowhere. And this creature appears, which basically would have saved their lives in terms of what they were eating. But then the shell of turtles, particularly like the hawksbill turtle, it's an incredible protein. And what happens is you can heat it and cool it rapidly, which means that it can be manipulated into all sorts of different shapes. And suddenly you have something that is not just about food, but is incredibly beautiful and can be used, you know, dare I say it, in many ways that we use plastic today. So there was a whole kind of industry created around this, you know, what we call tortoise shell spectacles, glass cases, cabinets, book covers, you know, from the shell of this creature. Wow. So not only was it a food source, but using the shell as a, as a material. So how widespread is that? Because obviously the turtles were in the Caribbean. So how was that then getting back into Europe? And was it purely, you know, decorative, as you say? The people in the 16th and 17th century that were going there, they really never imagined that these creatures could run out. You know, for them, there was this unbelievable abundance. It was a highly prized, highly expensive initially material. So, you know, if you're a pirate, because there were lots of pirates out there doing it as well, you can make a lot of money by, by going back to Europe and trading in tortoiseshell. I'll give an interesting parallel here with ivory. Much in the same way that the tusks were in African elephants and the same way that they got shipped to Europe and then ended up being used for things like billiard balls, on piano keys, the way they just entered the European market to become any other material until thankfully we learnt better. The similar thing with turtles and tortoiseshell. There was a real period of extraction that went on. Would you say that we're seeing this mostly in the in the Victorian era? That, that the, the things that we have in our collections, yes. But a lot of the early kind of extraction was around the 16th or the 17th century. I mean, I'll, I'll read you a very interesting description by a French pirate whose name was Alexandre Exquimelin. And he was operating from about 1645 to 1707. And this gives you an idea of, of why, you know, people at that time felt that this abundance would never end. And so in this translation, which was from um, his writings in 1678, he said, their eggs are found in such prodigious quantities along the sandy shores of those countries that they were not frequently destroyed by birds. The sea would infinitely abound with tortoises. Certain it is that many times the ships having lost their altitude through the darkness of the weather, have steered their course only by the noise of the tortoises swimming that way and have arrived at these isles. So, I mean, that's really quite an exotic image, the idea that they were following all these turtles to the shores where there were all these eggs, eggs that they would have eaten as well. 
Um, but the, it's this sense of abundance, which is in direct contrast to what we understand now about the vulnerability of turtles and how they've been overexploited. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an comp- incredibly different scenario today. Can you talk me through some of the things that, that you have in the collection? Yes, yeah, so we, we do have some um, artefacts, you know, particularly in the Victorian era, um, hair ornaments, tortoiseshell combs, you know, with those wonderful bouffant kind of hairstyles that, of that period. And, you know, and they would have donned a tortoiseshell comb. And as initially, it was a sign of wealth and prestige, to, you know, to have this kind of thing. Some of the objects in their time would have been seen as uh, luxury items. I mean, I, I, I would say in, in the same way that nowadays particular types of phones signify a, a certain status. That's an interesting comparison. But I've just got a picture here of the one of the combs that you're talking about. And it's this huge square with a really intricate, almost lace pattern on it and these five long prongs that you can just imagine someone either combing in and just slotting it in. So looking at some of the other items in the collection, I can see that there's these amazing glasses. I'm sort of ashamed to say that they look very similar to the ones I'm wearing today. I can confirm that mine are definitely plastic and not made of tortoiseshell, but they look very common to glasses that you'd see in your local opticians? Well, this is the thing. The amount of skill that would have gone into creating something so elaborate, you know, it's a thermoplastic material. So that means that, you know, it can be heated and cooled rapidly. But what I find very interesting is that, thankfully, it wouldn't be made from the shell of a hawksbill turtle. But it's the kind of thing that would not look out of place today. We love the pattern. It's recognisable. It has been seen to be beautiful for centuries. But I think it's what what can we do now is how can we find ways to still continue to replicate and create the beauty that we see in nature without harming nature. Mm. And so what can we do now? How has that influenced us today, do you think? Well, I think one of the great things is we're having this conversation, for example. And so when I do work um, supporting the learning team and and I've been into schools, I I show them some of these these objects and they immediately recognise the pattern and explain how now we are doing better and we find different ways of creating beauty that doesn't damage the world in the way that we have previously. But there's also things that we can do in terms of policy so hawksbill turtles, which is where most of the tortoise shell used to come from, are protected by um, international agreements like CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna. And since 2014, um, the, the trade has actually been made illegal. So these are things we can do. And there's also the Convention on Migratory Species, Because an important thing to note is that turtles um, are not static. They move, their nesting sites could be far away from where actually they're operating. So it's about protecting the animals themselves, but also protecting where they nest. And and, and it needs cooperation between many countries um, because, you know, we might think we like to believe in borders, but they certainly don't. JC Niala, Acting Keeper of Anthropology at the Horniman Museum and Gardens. And if you'd like to see those turtle shell artefacts for yourself, then we've put links to them in the episode description. Next time on Ocean Matters, with COP26 around the corner, we'll be exploring the impact of the climate crisis on our ocean. 
I'm Izzy Clark and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. <laughs>